Amen. Well, remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the gospel this morning, and then I'll read those first three verses. Let's pray together. Our blessed God, we do humbly, joyfully, Lord, with thanksgiving bow before you. And Lord, as we come now to this moment of your word being opened up and explained, Lord, we pray that you would come and bless us, that you would come and open our minds up to understand it, open our hearts up to receive it. Lord, if there are any here this morning that remained blind and dead to this gospel story, to the salvation that's in Christ, Lord, give them fresh eyes, a new heart, and the ability, O oh Lord, to see your glory from your word. Now come, O oh Lord, give this preached word efficacy and power to the building up of the body that is in your blessed son, the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his precious name, amen. Well, beloved, 1 Corinthians chapter one, beginning at verse one. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, I don't know if you have ever visited an older house or an old building, but walking in old structures, you might notice stress cracks on the walls. Oftentimes, these stress cracks are in the openings of the wall, in the pass-throughs, the places that you walk through, door openings and such. Now what happens and the reason those stress cracks are there is because at some point in the life of the building, the foundation began to, well, shift and settle. And when that happened, it moved that edifice that's built upon that foundation and it cracked that sheetrock. Now, why is that illustration important to you this morning, important for us? Well, Paul uses the analogy of an edifice, of a building in order to help the church at Corinth understand their stress cracks, those areas in their Christian lives that are suffering some of it was partisanship. They had 
formed groups among themselves and they had their favorite preachers and well, they become very segregated and haughty in one sense or another. There were moral infections in the church. Sexual immorality. There were abuses of the Lord's ordinances and graces. The abuses of the Lord's Supper. The abuses of spiritual gifts. The, the minimizing and abuse of of the spiritual proclamation of the gospel. Those were the stress cracks at Corinth. Now, what caused those sins to become prominent enough for the Apostle Paul to take time out on his second missionary journey to write a letter to them in order to admonish and correct them. He had received word in chapter one, he mentions Chloe, a church member at Corinth that had brought to him testimony of several witnesses that the church was in great danger that the church was in a compromised state, a weakened state. Paul had founded that church probably five to six years earlier. And just in those five to six years, the church is now already suffering because it has begun to compromise, as we will see, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the structure, the, the, the building of this spiritual church and the life that the people of God were to flourish in, they're not flourishing. They're downgrading, they're backsliding. And they are suffering at their own foolishness. And Paul is writing this letter in order to admonish them, correct them. If you will, let's use this word, reform them and bring them back to that apostolic ministry and gospel that he had already laid before them years earlier. You see, beloved, when an architect and an engineer sit down to draft a set of plans, they identify the most important places in the building that needs, well, structure, that needs a solid foundation. And, and they take those areas and they make sure that when it's built, it has a formidable and sufficient foundation to carry those weighted areas. even the big skyscrapers that we might see in the city. Now, foundation is the, one of the last things, well, engineered. Why? Because it has to carry everything that was drawn that would sit upon it. So these stresses at the church of Corinth, where did they come from? Well, they, as I stated, they were compromises, but but that doesn't tell us where they came from. As we will see moving forward that, that these, these the, the culprits are the causes of these fractures were coming from outside the church. They were coming from these 
false apostles or super apostles or these false teachers or these cultural icons of the day. And so what happens is these Christians had become, well, either indifferent or less enthused about the teaching of the apostle, and they begin incorporating the philosophy of the day into their lives. And thus, when they did that, they were replacing the foundation that, well, Paul had laid with them with Christ being the cornerstone. And when you begin fiddling with the foundation, you're going, and it's an insufficient, it's insufficient. All of these cultural icons were unable, if you will, to speak life into the congregation, to speak wisdom into the congregation. And Paul tells them in these first four chapters that it's the the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of this world. To, to settle for this. To, to give yourself to these cultural, philosophical icons, to, these, to these, this teaching, is foolishness. That can't even compare, certainly not compete with God's wisdom. And you are leaving God's wisdom and you're going after the, quote, wisdom of this world. And they were suffering for it. The congregation was suffering. And it would be silly for us and it would have been silly for the Apostle Paul not to address it because brothers and sisters, as he teaches us in chapter five, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One church in a denomination that begins to compromise, that begins to give up the the efficacy and the power of the preaching of the gospel and begin to give themselves to tactics and methods and business plans of the world in order to be successful will spread through all the denomination. It always does. It'll spread through the congregation when there's moral compromises People often overlook critical moral deficiencies and sins by saying, well, but I like that dear brother. Oh, I like that sister. They mean well. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. And Paul says, how arrogant you have become by allowing these sins in your midst. I can't think of a more timely message for the church today. I can't think of a more timely and important message for our young people sitting in church who are just inundated with all of these internet gurus. Now, I know some of you probably are not on the internet, but others are. Young people are. And they're watching and they're listening to people give advice about life, about marriage, about relationships, about happiness, about things that, well, 
are important in life. They're listening to others give them advice and it seems so reasonable and logical and it feeds the flesh. It tickles their natural senses and therefore they begin to move away from the apostolic foundation and they begin replacing it with the philosophers of the age. And they have conversations with the other young people. And they share what they're learning. And before you know it, there is no more conversations about Bible study. There is no more conversations about what we're learning in the sermons or what we're learning from our Sunday schools or anything of that nature or what we're learning even from our home devotions. Now it becomes, hey, have you heard this guy? Have you heard this woman? You need to listen to them. I'll send you the link. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not speaking from hearsay. I've been on these websites. I've listened to them. I've listened to them because what I've learned is this. I have talked to enough Christians that I begin hearing certain terminology and certain things, and I'm thinking, where, where's this coming from? Where is this, where's this language originating? Well, you can go right on YouTube and you can find these people. I'm not even going to mention their names because I, I don't even want to support them. But I can tell you how one of them has a very popular, millions of followers, prominent University professor who has laid out all of these laws and rules concerning human sexuality by studying a crab. Now, just let that, just pause, just pause. Let that sink in. You say, that's silly, Pastor. It's not silly when we find the application of the teaching in young people all around us who have made and determined, who have made judgments about the opposite sex because somebody popular on the internet that gets paid millions of dollars through conservative entities to tell us that these are how women are. And this is how men ought to be. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. There is a reason why we have experienced such fragile, why the church is experiencing such fragile relationships in the church today. It's not because of the teaching of Scripture. It's the opposite. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, I came to you in chapter 2, I came to you not to know anything but Jesus. I was so careful. I was I was painfully careful to set before you nothing but Christ. I was aware of what the philosophers of the day taught and I wanted you to have nothing set before you but Jesus. I can't express how disappointing it is when Christians use those books and articles and teachings in order to present a 
conservative view of relationships. Well, not a Christian view, mind you. Not a Christian view. Not one that Paul taught. Not one that was derived from the teaching of the apostles, handed down from Jesus to them, to the church, for their own edification and the building up of the body. No, not like that. No, this comes from the world. And it has that, it, it, it has almost that pleasant effect to the natural man that goes, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking in my natural state. Not in my spiritual mind, not, in, not when I sit down and I pray and then I, in the morning I'm like, Lord God, show me your word. What, what did, look at, look at even our confession of faith. Notice what we confess every Sunday. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, what? Stands forever. Forever, beloved. These cultural icons and their philosophies will pass away. Unfortunately, they will sweep many away with them, but that should not be the case with us. Amen. And this is what we're to do. We're to take and look and, and take to account this letter and ask ourselves, how should we reform as a church? Are there areas that are, do we see, do we see the beginning of, of, of stress cracks in our church, in our congregation? How do we take seriously the admonition of the apostle? Where do we begin? How do we begin to understand the, the edifice, the church, this, this holy house, if you will, that God says has been established? God, or Paul uses three analogies in the book to teach us about the church. He uses the analogy of a building. And that's what we'll focus on over the next several weeks. There's the analogy of a field the cultivating of a field. And then the third one is the analogy of the body. Where Jesus is the head, he moves the body according to his sovereign will. And of course, the house has an architect, an engineer, a cornerstone that it rests upon. And as long as Jesus remains the cornerstone of the church, it remains a strong church. And as long as we as church members rest submissively on that foundation, guess what? We will have blessings abundantly those Christian graces that have been granted to us in Christ will thrive in our lives. We will see the blossoming of these Christian graces come alive and mature us in this life, in this world. And we'll be able, as Paul said, to discern between this world and, well, the divine. Now we'll emphasize as we move along in this book a Christian church. I have to. Why? Because there are more and more false churches coming up every day. There are more, look, any church that fixates on anything outside the triune God and the redemption that is only in Christ and the 
ministry of the apostles is not a true church. I'm sorry. Mormons are not true Christians. Jehovah Witnesses are not true Christians. These are not true Christian churches. They are false Christian churches. We have those who have deviated from the apostolic truth that has been given and handed down throughout the ages and they've left the faith, they've apostatized from the faith and now they, fo- they fixate upon the woke ideologies of communism and, and the LGBTQABZD ministries and they focus on that and that's where they are and those are false churches. I did laugh out loud at one little comic that somebody drew. It showed a woman in the pulpit with all of her LGBT banners on her body and Jesus is kind of standing off to the background and she's in the pulpit and she looks over and goes, now who are you? I think you get the point. It's not a church that rests upon Jesus Christ. It's not a church that's identified with Jesus Christ. Or the Jesus that they identify with is certainly not the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or Paul or Peter. So, beloved, our task is simple. It's not hard. But it does require attention. It does require effort. It does require that we take to heart the admonition. It requires that we examine ourselves and say, well, have I replaced Jesus with my favorite preacher? Because even that's a fallacy. Even that's a danger. As we will learn in these first four chapters, Paul says, I didn't come for my own glory. I came so that I may set before you Jesus. Now, that's the difference in what we might call true ministers of the gospel versus men who have ministries, okay? There's a difference. There are men out there that are doing nothing but advocating themselves as being, well, the answer. And Paul says, listen, I came, I set nothing before you but Jesus. I I am but the Lord's servant. If you look in chapter four, and we'll be looking at some of these in just a second, he says, I am but the servant of Christ. I didn't come to exalt myself. I didn't come to promote my own ministry. I came to do nothing but promote and set before you Jesus and his gospel. for you are his workmanship. You're not created in the name of the pastor, you're created in the name of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. And we have to be mindful of this. We've got to keep this in perspective and focus because we want the church to maintain and persevere her holiness and her her longevity with the adornment of these Christian graces and the gospel in order to be different from everything else out there. And the only way we can do that is focusing on Christ focusing on the triune God as he has come to us in Christ. 
and that gospel that he has ordained for the apostles and all all successive ministers to preach. Well, let's look at these first few verses as we sort of set the stage, if you will, of the book and hopefully wet your spiritual whistle in order to say, listen, I I really am looking forward to hearing this book opened up and explained. Now we're talking about Christian foundation, a Christian foundation. Because everybody seems to be selling something. You know, all of these cultural icons and gurus are selling something. First of all, they're selling their own wisdom because they want you to follow and subscribe. They want you to be a Patreon member. They want you to give something to their ministry so they can keep producing content just like this one. They want you to come to them and listen to them on how to understand life. But only the Christian foundation is suitable for such things, such glorious things. Listen, life is precious. Life is a gift from God. It was God that created man from the dust of the earth. It was God that breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It was God that made the woman from the side of Adam. It was God that gave him a help me. It was God that ordained man in his image, male and female, and gave them the dominion mandate. It comes from God, the divine architect of this world and especially of the church. We we do not need to lose sight of this. And I think this is part of the problem with the fracturing and the, the, the splitting and the schisms in the church because so many now have resorted to, well, being online for their ministry. I guess enough of that. But I can tell you from someone who speaks to young people on a regular basis, it's a problem. It's a problem because they are listening to other people and they're Googling, well, what do I need to think about this? What do I need to think about that? How do I find a mate? How do I find a husband? Where do I find a wife? They're Googling those things. What's five, what's a good question to ask a future spouse? They're not coming to the pastor. They're not coming to the session. They're typically not going to their parents. Okay, enough for sure. This time. I think three things that I want to set before you this morning as we talk about this sure foundation being a Christian foundation. First of all, we see that this foundation is apostolic in nature. We see that in verse one. We see that in verse one. It's apostolic. Now here's why this is important. We don't want to begin our thinking about the church in the 21st century or even the 16th century or the 15th century. 
We want to go back to the foundation, the laying of the foundation, and we want to begin, right, where the Lord Jesus tells us to begin. We want to think about it in the terms that Christ has set before us. And it's important to note, beloved, that the sure foundation, the Christian foundation, is an apostolic foundation. We see in verse 1, Paul says, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Well, let's, let's look at just a couple of things this morning because you may not be aware of this. You may be like so many that just think that the church is something like, well, like government or marriage. It's just something people decided to do and would be a great thing to do. That's why some people believe that civil magistrates is just a social construct. They don't think that God ordained it. They never read Romans 13. Are many of these Old Testament texts that sets forth what a righteous civil magistrate looks like. No, they just say, oh, it just, we just figured it's a social construct, which means, by the way, that we can take it or leave it. Now let that sink in. If it's a social construct that we need it, it can also be a social construct that we don't need it any longer. But that is not the case in the world that God created. It's the same thing with marriage. If marriage is just a social convention, then people can decide just to live together. We don't need marriage to, I don't need to be married to reproduce. I don't need to be married to have children. And yet that's what we're seeing. So we need to understand that there is a genuine divine architect, God the Father, God in his son Jesus has orchestrated these things and he has set forth the apostles as being part of the Christian foundation. Let's turn to two places in the book of Matthew. Turn first of all to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 13 and following down to verse 20, Jesus asked the disciples, his disciples, before they become apostles, a question. Verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 14, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. So there was a wide range of opinion about what the masses thought about Jesus. The variety of opinion here. And so then in verse 15, he asked the disciples and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks out in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Peter, as you may know, was the spokesman of the disciples and the apostles many times. 
that he would speak in sort of on behalf of the group. So it is very reasonable to think that this was the conversation happening among the disciples, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now this is important. This is not of human origin, is it? This comes from God. God is the one that divinely reveals who Jesus is. The world can't see it. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, he says, do you not know that Jesus to the world is foolishness? The preaching of Christ, the preaching of the cross, the world scoffs at it, it mocks at it. The world says, how can this crucified man change anything? That's their, that's their plea. It's divinely revealed what Jesus is saying. And then in verse 18, this is where we're going. But I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, this is a verse that has historically, the interpretation and understanding of this verse is that here again is sort of this precursor that these disciples who would future, in the future become apostles, would be laying the foundation of the church, their teaching, their teaching. But where did they get the teaching? They're not teaching their opinions. Now go to Matthew 28. It's not that they are um, each one starting their own channel and ministry and going their own ways. No, there's authority. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And he is commissioning these apostles to do his will and to teach his doctrine. Matthew 28 Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And then there's the promise at the end of verse 20. Not only are they to go teach what Jesus had commanded them to teach, and to exercise Christian ordinances in the name of the triune God, he says, not only are you to go do these things, I will be with you as you go. That's a promise. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. That is, as you perform this apostolic ministry and those after you in successive manner and ordination, I will be with you. I will be with the church as they continue to do what? Teach my law, teach my word, teach my rules. Turn to Ephesians chapter two. All I'm trying to do at this point this morning is to demonstrate to you that 
When Paul speaks as an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he has authority. He's been given authority. He is coming in the name of Christ. He's coming to teach the doctrines of Christ. And therefore, because he is an apostle, because he's been ordained of Christ, because he's teaching the doctrines of Christ, the church must submit to his teaching. You know, I've, I've heard Christians, I've heard Christians say, well, I don't like that Apostle Paul. Now, look, maybe, you know, maybe some of us have said it, not knowing better. But I've been in some Bible studies, and I'm like, I'll turn over to such and such the epistle, and, and, and the Apostle Paul, and I, oh, Apostle Paul is a chauvinist. A bigot. <laughs> Excuse me? They, they were serious. But that, that's not the only time I've heard this. The Apostle Paul, listen to me, the Apostle Paul in liberal circles, well, he's the whipping boy. He's the whipping boy. They love, liberal circles love to tie the Apostle Paul to the whipping post and go, he was so narrow-minded. He forbid women to even speak in church. I don't even know why women go to church in the Apostle Paul's time. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. The misinformation, the misunderstanding, and what we might call just the abuse of the Apostle Paul, apostle abuse. But let's look at Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, we know that it is a letter, it's written to teach the doctrine of the church. And in, we're not going to read every verse from verse 11 through, but he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles uh, now being brought together in Christ, that Christ is forming out of those two groups one new man. So in this illustration or in this analogy, Paul is using a, a man for the church. And remember in Corinthians, we started with a structure. Here, Paul is saying, now God has taken both of these and now he's created one. If you remember last week I said, Paul saw the world in three categories. There's the Jews, there are the Gentiles, and then there are Christians. That's it. That's the way Paul saw the world. Paul, you, could, you were either a, a Jew sort of by tradition, or you were a Gentile, again, by culture, by custom. But to be drawn out of that, to come out of that, and to be a Christian, now's a new man. You, got, you give up those things. You, you give up the synagogue. You, you give up this Jewish tradition. You give up your, your Greek icons. You give up your Greek gods. And now you come to be incorporated into one new man that he calls the church. And now he's, he moves from there. And notice what he said. He said in verse 16 that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. That's the preaching, the through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity, 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now let's... let's take a few of these parts and just expound on them. Outside of Jesus, everyone are aliens and strangers. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you're an alien and a stranger to the things of God, to him. He says, but you, you being you who have what? Become believers in Jesus Christ, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are now incorporated with all of these other people who have professed to believe in Jesus Christ, who have confessed their sins, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who have been bought with a, well, a divine price. Or by a divine price. He said, you are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Notice in that statement right there, notice how beautiful the connection Paul makes from the New Testament church to the Old Testament church. It's one church. That's the unity. God's people have always been those who are by faith and never by outward ordinance. Outward baptism, outward sacrificing, all of these outward worship, outward praise, outward thanksgiving. Beloved, just because we thank God with our lips doesn't mean our hearts belong to him. And that was part of the Old Testament church's issue and why Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was sent as that wolf to go and judge the southern kingdom. He said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are not with me. The unity, if you will, there's only one church, beloved, and there's, ever, there's only ever been one gospel, gracious church. And the unity of that church is that those who are the true members of God's true household are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and they rest upon in the Old Testament the foundation of the prophets in the New Testament both the prophets and the apostles with Jesus being the cornerstone the prophets and the apostles connecting to Jesus why because the prophets taught us about Jesus he was to come 
the Messiah to come, the promised one to come, the one who would come and lay down his life as a lamb to the slaughter. Read Isaiah 53 that speaks about the suffering Savior, the one who would come and suffer on the behalf of many. By his stripes, the scriptures say, through the Isaiah the prophet, we are healed. And we see, beloved, that this apostleship is valid, it's real, it's important, it's necessary. But, beloved, listen to me. There is no true Christian church that's not an apostolic church. And now, I have to say this. I'm not talking about the self-proclaimed apostles in the charismatic movement. And there are piles of them. Apostle so-and-so and apostle so-and-so. And they just, you know, where they baptize themselves. I don't know if you saw that movie with Robert Duvall. You know, he baptizes himself and calls himself an apostle. And, you know, my wife wouldn't even watch that movie. She goes, this is blasphemous. And yet it was a movie that depicted the charismatic movement. He went around to churches studying these charismatic churches before he wrote and produced and starred in that movie. These are the things he witnessed. That's why the charismatic experience is a great failure and an affront to God because it deviates and leaves the apostolic foundation and focuses on so many worldly things and worldly wisdom and not the wisdom of God because the wisdom of God says it is the apostles and the prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone. This is the foundation of this beautiful edifice we know as the Christian church. Let me... Um, and I guess to demonstrate somewhat of this is not a new teaching. Paul did not make this up, as it were. He wasn't just creating like one day going, hey, I think the church would be really better understood if, we, if I taught it like it was a building. No, he, 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 where did he get this teaching? Well, turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 43. This will be our last scripture reference and then I'll make some applications and we're done for this morning. This is the prophet Ezekiel and he's talking about the vision that is the, this glory of God filling, if you will, the temple. But notice in verse 10, or look at verse nine. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. So he, even here, the prophet is speaking to the church and he's saying, listen, you've offended me. There are practices that you are doing that are, that are offensive to me. You have to repent of those things and you need to reform yourselves. Now look at verse 10 through 12. But as for you, son of man, now notice what the prophet has to do. 
describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed for their iniquities and let them measure the plan or the pattern. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its design, all its statutes, all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on the top of the mountain and all around shall be most holy because this is the law of the house. Now let's bring some applying principles to what we've learned. When the church is not the church, there is less shame in the world. When the church who was who who have who's ordained and gifted and empowered for what holiness purity of life sound doctrine true worship to the living god the world then begins to see the glory of God in this earthly, visible church. And when the church is not the church, the world goes on failing and failing and failing because there's no pattern of holiness for them to compare themselves to. And what happens when Christians compromise? You tell me, brother. You tell me. What happens when we fail? What happens when we stop looking for advice from the Apostle Paul and we go out and we look for these cultural gurus? He says that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. That the worship service ought to be so reverent that when that sinner slips in for a visit, they are inundated with, now listen, the beauty and the glory and the holiness of God that they are convicted. Not, man, that's a great lighting setup you have. I love the drums. I love the, the, I'm stopped. But you get it, don't you? Because the church has succumbed to the world's methods and techniques. When Paul says in those first four chapters, it's the power of God unto salvation, it's the gospel. That's what we came to preach. And I did it in simple words. I set forth Christ to you and to you who are saved, Christ is precious. To those of you that God has opened your eyes, he's opened your mind, Christ is precious. But to those of you who are still, who still remain in your deadness, Christ is offensive. He's a stumbling block.
He's worthy of mockery. Notice how he goes on and the prophet goes on in verse 11 and he says what? If they are ashamed of all that they have done, these are moral failures, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, its designs, its statutes, all its laws. Beloved, what's what's the prophet saying? Oh, may the church of God be the church of God so that sinners might come to it and know the ways of God and repent of their sins that they may come and learn the doctrines of salvation. They might learn the doctrine of repentance. They may learn what the family is supposed to be. They may learn how to treat their business relationships with integrity, that they may learn, beloved, that they may know how to live. You don't need a life coach. You need Jesus. You need to be taught Christ. You need to know who you are. And that's what Paul says. Let me remind you that you are in Christ. You know who you are. I'll end with this, and I mean it. The church is no doubt suffering from an identity crisis. And it's not because we don't have all of sorts of technology. Oh, we've got everything you can imagine. We've got fancy websites. We've got all kinds of gadgets and things that make us look so sophisticated. But beloved, the end, the end of the day, the question is, are we, do we have Christ in our midst? Are we seeking Christ? Are we preaching the gospel Are we holding people, professing Christians and members to account of the gospel? Don't, do not exalt the preachers. Exalt the Christ who gave the preachers. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to just begin to open up such a needed word for our day. Father, I suspect that we all have things that we can reform in our lives, that we can repent of, that we can, Lord, realign ourselves with the need and the necessity of of what the Christian church rests upon is that, that, that foundation of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. Father, give again, enliven the gifts of this church, these graces. Stir them up. Stir our hearts. Stir our lives. Help us, O oh Lord, to become more appreciative, more thankful, more desirous, and more focused, and, and Lord, a greater servitude for serving our blessed risen Savior. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.